um, here at Redemption. And if you can't tell, I'm a University of South Carolina Gamecock fan. And uh, both the men, who said boo? That's not okay. (laughs) Both of our men's and women's teams have made it to the Elite Eight of the um, NCAA basketball tournament. And if you're a South Carolina fan like me, there's not a lot to celebrate when it comes to sports. And so when we have an opportunity, we celebrate. So I just want to point that out. Um, But in all seriousness, uh, this morning, uh, we are continuing in our series called Lent. And so for the past few weeks, um, we're moving through some of the final chapters of Matthew leading up to uh, Easter and the celebration of the resurrection so that we're celebrating that here at Redemption Church whenever we get to that in the book of Matthew. And so this morning, uh, we're going to be taking a look at a pretty large piece of Matthew in Matthew chapter 24, and I'll get to that in a second. Um, But just a reminder that during Lent, what we're doing is we're setting aside some time and being intentional about reorienting ourselves and our lives and all that we are around Jesus. That's the point of Lent. It's not just to recognize that we're leading up to Easter, but it's to be intentional about saying during this time we're reorienting our lives around Christ, a renewed effort to do so. And so a couple of weeks ago uh, on our website where you can go check this out, Ben put up a blog post where during Lent he challenged us to some very very specific things. One of those is to be a church that prays, to be intentional about praying during this time, uh, to be a church that's radically committed to increasingly submitting all of life to the empowering presence and the lordship of Jesus Um, And specifically, Ben challenged us during this period of time to be involved in God's Word and to ask ourselves some specific questions as we look at God's Word. Some of those questions are actually in your bulletin this morning where we post some questions and some follow-up to this morning's sermon. Um, And also during this time, uh, Ben has called us to be radically committed to identifying and reaching outsiders with the good news of Christ and inviting people into our homes, inviting people to church, inviting people to our missional communities, Uh, and involving ourselves in the lives of others. So like I said, uh, but this morning we're moving on to Matthew chapter 24 and looking at a fairly large piece of scripture that I'll read in just a second. Uh, Matthew chapter 24 is known as Matthew chapter 24 and 25, but just Matthew 24 this morning. But anyway, Matthew 24 and 25 are known as the Olivet Discourse or the fifth discourse in the book of Matthew. Uh, It's called the Olivet Discourse because it's happened on the Mount of Olives. And it's this large chunk of teaching from Jesus. This happens five times in Matthew. This is the last one where Matthew records for us just some extended time of teaching uh, from Jesus. Uh, Very specifically, um, the passage that we deal with this morning, the fifth discourse, uh, like I said, is pretty lengthy. And so what I hope to do with this this morning is sort of set up this passage in the context of Matthew And in the context of what I believe Jesus is communicating and what Matthew is doing in his gospel. So we're not going to be able to look at every single verse. That's what I'm getting at there. Uh, But I want to set it up in the context of overall what's going on, number one. And then number two, I want to look at three very specific areas, three very specific applications for how Jesus, I believe, is pushing us to reorient our lives around him as he's pointing all the people around him to the cross during this last week of his life. Uh, So I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll move on from there. God, thank you for the opportunity to be here once again uh, this morning. God, thank you for your word. Uh, Thank you that we can spend a little bit of time uh, 
diving into what you would have us hear from your word. And God, I pray even as I stand on the stage and preach over the next few minutes, God, that you would be at work in our hearts and minds. I pray that we would hear from you and not simply from me. God, I recognize that my words are of little importance, but God, your words are of utmost importance. And so, God, I pray that we would hear your words. I pray that you would use me as an instrument of your grace and mercy, an instrument of the gospel, that Jesus would be lifted high and that we would be drawn to you because of Christ and because of Christ alone. And God, I ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Matthew 24, if you have a Bible and want to turn there, please, please do so. Uh, it's also going to be up here on the screen. Uh, I'm actually going to read 36 verses, so just hang in there. I'm going to read through it all, and then we'll move on from there. But Matthew chapter 24, starting at verse 1. I have to put my glasses up because I'm getting old to read. Matthew 24. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation, and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away, and betray one another, and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down and take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will the coming of of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is... There the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree... 
learn its lesson. As soon as this branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that the end is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. There's a lot of stuff there, right? And several months ago, when Ben and Brent and I were sitting around scheduling who was going to deal with the remaining passages in Matthew 24, I think all of us has had a hesitancy to tackle this morning's text. And you can understand why. After reading it and hearing it spoken, it's a difficult passage, no doubt. And part of what makes this passage so difficult is the fact that everyone claims it in some way. And I'll get to that in just a second. Here's here's what I mean by the fact that everyone claims it. The Christian understandings of the last days of what happens to the world as we know it in the end times has in some ways captured the imagination of a lot of people. Just over the last few years in our society and culture, we've seen movies like Left Behind with both Kirk Cameron and Nicolas Cage. We've seen a movie from Seth Rogen called This is the End, which was a comedy movie, but dealt with the end of the world. And many Christians get seriously caught up in and enthralled by the study of the last days, as do other people who may not be followers of Christ. And so when we look at the last days and we talk about things that are going to happen at the end of the world before Jesus returns, all of this stuff gets classified in an area of theology called eschatology. It's the study of the end, the study of what's coming. And um, there are all sorts of systematized understandings of the last days. And they all revolve around things like this. When is Jesus coming back a second time like he promised? Will there be a seven-year tribulation at the end of time? Is that what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 24? Is there going to be a millennium when Jesus rules on the earth after he returns a second time? When will Jesus judge sinners and Satan and set up a new heaven and a new earth? When when is all this going to happen, right? And regarding Jesus' return, some people think that Jesus is going to return twice, once to rapture his people and then a few years later with his people to set up a millennial kingdom. Some people think that when Jesus returns, he's going to stick around. Some people think that Jesus will only return once the gospel has been preached to all the nations. Some people think that the gospel has already been preached to all the nations, and that happened in the first century with the disciples. Regarding the seven-year period of suffering called the tribulation, some people think that Jesus will return at the beginning of the tribulation to rapture his people, and then again at the end of the tribulation with his people. Some people think Jesus will return during the middle of the tribulation and then again at the end. Some people think that Jesus will return at the end of the tribulation only. Some people think this idea of a tribulation has already occurred in the first century. Some people think the tribulation is occurring now. And some people don't talk about the tribulation. Regarding the millennium, what is typically referred to as a thousand-year period where Jesus reigns on earth before establishing a new heaven and a new earth. Some people think that the battle of Armageddon, when Jesus vanquishes Satan forever and judges sinners, happens at the beginning of the millennium, but right after the tribulation. Some people think the battle of Armageddon happens at the end of the millennium. 
Some people think the church is going to usher in the millennium as the gospel advances and the world becomes more and more Christian. And then Jesus will return at the end of the millennium for a final resurrection to establish a new heaven and a new earth. Some people think the millennium is happening right now. It's spiritual in nature. And at some point, Christ will return in final judgment and establish a permanent reign in the new heaven and the new earth. There are a lot of beliefs about the end time. We classify them as pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, post-tribulation, pre-millennialism, post-millennialism, all-millennialism, preterist post-tribulation, and I can go on and on and on. There's a lot of thoughts about what's going on at the end of times. And all these ideas are very nuanced, and people who share similar views probably believe differently about some of the things even within their own camp. And most of these systematized eschatologies in some way refer back to Matthew chapter 24 to make their point. So I have to ask myself, and I have to ask as I look at Matthew 24, is Matthew 24 really about making a point about the end of time, or is Jesus doing something else in Matthew chapter 24? Most people, when they come to Matthew chapter 24, interpret this chapter in light of whatever their belief system regarding the end of times might be. But when Jesus spoke these words, was he speaking these words to support one of our formulations, which may or may not be um, what Jesus was referring to? And when Matthew included this story in his gospel, was he doing it to offer support to some future eschatological formulation that didn't even exist when Matthew wrote the gospel is that's what's happening here. And I'm not sure that's what's happening. While this passage of Scripture combined with other passages in First and Second Thessalonians and First and Second Peter and Revelation and the Old Testament prophets certainly help us understand end times, Jesus didn't speak these things to support a singular view, and Matthew didn't include it for that purpose either. I'm going to get to why I think it's there in a second. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do, though. I'm going to ask you to take whatever baggage you brought here this morning regarding what you believe about the end times and push it aside. I'm literally asking you to take all of that stuff, put it on an imaginary table in front of you, and push it aside. And approach this passage with new eyes, with a new perspective, right? When my kids ask me what's for dinner, they do this all the time. If you have kids, you know this, right? But my kids ask me for dinner all the time, what's for dinner all the time. And I know usually when they come and ask me what's for dinner, what they want me to say. They want me to say that we're going to Moe's Southwest Grill. Or Natalie wants me to say we're going to Nacho Mama's or Firehouse or Laurel wants to go somewhere else. I know that's what they want. And so I'll say we're having monkey brains or monkey feet or monkey liver or something that we wouldn't typically eat, right? And so then when I can turn around and say we're having chicken and rice and broccoli, it doesn't sound so bad, right? (laughs) New perspective. That's what I want you to approach Matthew chapter 24 with right now, a new perspective. And here's why I'm asking you to approach this passage with a new perspective. When Jesus spoke these words... All of those eschatological formulations that I talked about just a minute ago did not exist. They didn't exist. There was certainly a formulation of what would happen in the end, but not in the way I framed it a little bit ago. Their views 
of what was going to happen at the end of time, the, the Jewish view coming out of the Old Testament was something entirely didn't. Our formulations didn't exist. So I don't think this passage can be just about some formulation of what's going to happen at the end. The original hearers of Jesus' word and the original readers of the book of Matthew and the hearers of the book of Matthew would have hoped for something like this more than likely. That God would return one day and bring about what the Old Testament calls the day of the Lord. A time when God will have a final victory over all of his enemies. The Old Testament hoped for the day when God would not only be the sovereign king in heaven, controlling the affairs of the world, but would stand forth in glory and save his people from sin and misery and all of his enemies and all of their enemies and establish a kingdom of righteousness and peace and set up a throne on earth to rule in a very immediate and personal way. That was an Old Testament eschatological position. Zechariah 14.9 says this, And the Lord will become king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. They were waiting for God to one day assert his kingly rule over the earth in a way that he will no longer have any competitors. He will be one, the only one. If you want a good understanding of the Old Testament eschatological view, look at Zechariah chapters 12, 13, and 14. They are really rough passages. But you get the Old Testament sense that God is going to return and win and be a king that lasts, be a, and establish a kingdom that will last forever. The Old Testament eschatological view was about God returning and establishing his kingdom forever, defeating Israel's enemies. And there was a sense of judgment for sinners as well. But that formulation was really about God returning, like I said, winning, setting up a kingdom. It wasn't convoluted like all of our eschatological positions end up being. Here's the second reason that I want you to take all that baggage and put it aside. When Matthew wrote his gospel and included this story, he did so with a purpose. The book of Matthew is part of a genre in the Bible that we call a gospel, right? You've heard this, the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. A gospel is a historical biography with a purpose. It's not a complete history of Jesus' life. It's not a complete biography in the, way that we, in the way that we would think of a biography, like if we were looking at a biography of Abraham Lincoln or somebody. But it is a historical biography with a purpose. And so when Matthew includes events from Jesus' life and real words from Jesus' life and real teachings from Jesus' life, he's doing it with a purpose. He has an end in mind. He has an audience in mind, and he has an end in mind. And the first 23 chapters of Matthew have literally, literally been about the kingdom of God coming to earth. It, that's what the book of Matthew is about. It's about Jesus being the king who's going to rule in the place of David, just like God promised in the Old Testament, on a throne that lasts forever. It's about Jesus being that king and Messiah that's going to fulfill God's promise of a rule and a reign, a Messiah who's going to defeat God's enemies and the enemies of his people forever. And here in chapter 24, we're in the last week of Jesus' life. We're moving toward the cross. Jesus is reorienting the eyes and minds of all the people around him toward the cross. 
But Matthew, in including this story, is not doing something different than he hasn't done all along. I don't know what that is. That was really distracting. Matthew 24 is about the kingdom, just like the first 23 chapters of Matthew 24 has been about the kingdom. Jesus, or Matthew is continuing to record the teachings of Jesus so that we might see Jesus as a conquering king who is going to defeat God's enemies and establish the kingdom that will last forever. So when you come to Matthew 24, I want you to come to Matthew 24 with new eyes. Let's have some spiritual LASIK for a minute. Let's get our eyes right. And let's come to Matthew 24 with the understanding of what's going on in the larger context of the book of Matthew. And so as we focus in on the idea that Matthew is presenting to us the words of Jesus and showing us that Jesus is the conquering king who is going to establish a rule that lasts forever, as we understand that that context, I want us to focus in on three main points of application, three main ways in which Jesus, in his words, reorients all of our life toward himself, in which Jesus reorients us toward him as the Messiah. I want you, here's what we're going to talk about. Jesus reorients our fear to faith, our despair to hope, and our apathy to action. Jesus reorients our fear to faith, our despair to hope, and our apathy to action. Number one, Jesus reorients our fear to faith. When we think about the end times, a lot of us have different emotions and reactions. Some of us are fearful of what's going to happen, especially when we read what we read a minute ago. Uh, We're fearful of what's coming. And if it happens soon, we might be fearful that it's going to mess up our plans. Right? When I was in high school, I went to a a Christian high school right up the road, and um, when they were teaching us about the end times, I remember sitting there going, I don't want that to happen anytime soon because I want to get out of school, I want to go make some money, and I want to have some fun. So Jesus, don't come back yet because you're going to mess up my plans. Some of us are curious about how things will play out in the end, and some of us, quite frankly, are obsessed with it. Some of us don't want to think about what's going to happen in the end because it seems so convoluted and hard to understand. But know this, the idea that Jesus is returning is absolutely central to our faith. In the 260 chapters of the New Testament, there are around 318 references to the second coming of Christ. For every prophecy in the Bible concerning Jesus' first advent, there are eight that look forward to the second coming of Jesus and the final victory of God. And so when we hear about the end times, when we think about Jesus coming to earth the second time, we're living in this now but not yet tension. This tension to where we know that God has won the victory that he promised us he would win when he defeated Satan, sin, and death for all time on the cross. But we haven't fully realized that yet. We live in a world that's still fallen and broken. And that tension of the now but not yet should turn our thoughts towards the idea That Jesus will return. He will fully realize the victory he's already won. And God will establish a kingdom that has no end. And we'll actually see that kingdom physically 
as opposed to the way it breaks through now in the lives and hearts and minds of people. Listen to what Jesus said, right, in verses 30 through 31. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Jesus will return. And when he returns, it will be with great power and great glory. And so right now, there's no need for us to fear anything on this earth because Jesus is returning. God's judgment, that's worth fearing. But Jesus has given us the antidote. Jesus has given us salvation. The day is coming when God will set up his kingdom in such a way that the glory of the Lord will be revealed and no longer hidden. It will be fully realized. So in Matthew 24, the disciples see the temple, and they say, Jesus, look at the temple. And Jesus says, the day is coming when no stone on that temple will be unturned. And they look at Jesus and say, when will you come again, and what will the signs of your coming be? And Jesus begins to talk about the signs of some of Uh, of what's going to happen before he comes again. And quite frankly, some of those things are horrifying. But where does Jesus eventually go? Jesus gets to the point where he says, I'm coming again. The disciples are focused on knowing when and how the end will come about, and Jesus tells them a little bit about that. But Jesus, after telling them all about the bad things that will happen before the end, Jesus tells them that he will be returning in power and glory. And the point of what Jesus is saying and what Matthew is framing is this. Jesus will come again, and Jesus will reign as king. Right? He spends chapter 24 telling us what's going to happen before he returns. Chapter 25, the end of chapter 24, and all of 25 are about what we should be doing in light of the fact that Jesus is returning. And that's what we'll look at next week. But Matthew 24 is about hey, things are going to get rough, but I'm coming back. Life will be difficult for the followers of Jesus. There will be suffering, and that suffering will let us know that the return is imminent. That's why Jesus gave the lesson about the fig tree, knowing that summer is near. And when you you see these things happening on the fig tree, you know that summer is coming. Jesus simply says, there's going to be suffering. And when there is suffering and bad things are happening, my return is imminent. But he's going to return. In reality, just a few days from when Jesus teaches this, he wins the victory over Satan's sin and death for all time. And he will fully realize that later. But the victory is there. God is doing what he said he would do. And Jesus is going to return again to fully realize that victory. Jesus is reorienting them away from events and instead toward the fact that he will come again in victory and power and glory. And it would be a mistake for us to look at Matthew 24 through the lens of knowing what's going to happen at the end. We would be just like the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Herodians that we've read about in the chapters leading up to Matthew chapter 24. When we start focusing on things that 
we want to know about and things that we want to understand, we possibly, possibly could be missing the big picture. We possibly could be missing the big picture of the kingdom, that God is going to return and do exactly what he said he was going to do. The fact that Jesus is going to return should actually embolden our faith, not weaken it. The fact that Jesus will return should cause our eyes to turn to him rather than what's happening. The fact that Jesus will return is evidence that Jesus is a Messiah and that Jesus is a king who will rule forever. Jesus reorients our fear to faith. Number two, Jesus reorients our despair to hope. In verses 6 through 8, we read this. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Right? That's frightening in and of itself because Jesus says when you hear about these things, that's just the beginning. Things haven't gotten bad yet. And then in verses 16 through 21, we read stuff like this. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. So the disciples asked Jesus, when will this be? And what will the signs be? Jesus answers the question of when this will be in verse 36 when he says, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Right? The point is not when. The point is that his return is imminent. But he answers the questions of the signs by talking about some pretty terrible things. And when... Jesus answers this question about the signs. We still throw confusion into this discussion when we interpret it in light of our systems of the end time. Some people think that the signs Jesus is talking about have already occurred. Some people think they are occurring. Some people think they're going to occur in the future. Some think they're a combination of all these things. But what we do know and what we can see is that all around us our world has fallen. And there's some pretty terrible things happening right now. Our world has fallen and wrecked by sin. But we have hope because Jesus is returning. And Jesus reorients our hope away from these terrible things to the fact that he is a king who will return. Jesus' second return promises us that this terrible world will not last forever. Cornelius Plantiga, who is a theologian and professor and um, seminary administrator, said this, the second coming of Jesus Christ is good news for people whose lives are filled with bad news. If you were a slave in Pharaoh's Egypt or in the United States in the early 19th century, if you are an Israelite exiled in Babylon or a Kosovar exiled in Albania, if you are a woman living in a culture where your husband, where when your husband gets mad at you, he can lock you up in a closet or threaten to have his buddies come and attack you, then you don't yawn when somebody mentions the return of Jesus Christ, because there is great hope to be found in the return of Jesus Christ. Jesus reorients our despair to hope. For many people in our world, life is way worse than it is for you and I. And for Christians, 
in other countries and other places of the world who are alive right now today. Their lives are so tough and their lives are daily threatened. And the return of Jesus is not trivial because their hope is in a king who will return and bring an end to this world that's still experiencing the effects of sin and brokenness. His return brings a hope based on the very word of Jesus that he will return again, that his return is imminent. And the fact that his return is imminent should reorient our despair to hope. Number three, Jesus reorients our apathy to action. Jesus reorients our fear to faith, our despair to hope. And in this passage, Jesus reorients our apathy to action. Look at verses 32 through 35, and then verse 14 we'll back up to. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that the summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. My words will not pass away. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. That's verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Right? Jesus says this gospel of the kingdom right in the middle of the fact when Jesus is talking about some pretty terrible things that are going to happen. But it's a reminder that God is at work, that what's going on here is a part of a much bigger story of God establishing his kingdom that will last forever. Even in the midst of the realization that life is going to be difficult before Jesus returns, there is this sense that his return is imminent. I'm reminded of the movie The Christmas Story, When Ralphie gets in a fight and his little brother hides in the kitchen cabinet. Do you know what I'm talking about? He hides in the kitchen cabinet and he's crying because the dad's going to come home and Ralphie's going to be in trouble when the dad gets home. Right? His return is imminent. And it's going to be tough. But we have hope knowing that Jesus is coming again. And these words, these words, the word of God, the gospel of the kingdom are of utmost importance during these times of great anxiety, during these times of great tribulation, during these times of just terrible things happening around us. They are the things that help us reorient our fear to faith, our despair to hope, and our apathy to action. It's the very word of God that does that. How do we reorient our fear toward faith? Well, it's with the gospel of the kingdom. How do we reorient our despair towards hope with the hearing of Jesus' words. Why are we called to action? Because Jesus tells us that his return is imminent. And like I said, we'll talk more about that call to action next week, what Jesus is calling his people to do. Whose job is it for the gospel of the kingdom to be proclaimed prior to Jesus' return? Well, it's those of us who have hope. It's those of us who have been given faith. We're the ones that have been called to action. And so when Jesus says his word will abide, and when Jesus says that the gospel of his kingdom will continue to be proclaimed until his return, well, guess whose job that is, right? 
That's ours. Because Jesus has saved us. Because Jesus has made us his own. Because we belong to Christ, we have a job to do. We don't do that job in order to be accepted, but because we are accepted, because God has come to us and given us the promise of a future hope, it's our job to proclaim that future hope. It's a call to action. We can't be apathetic. It's a call to action. To wrap all this up, let's get real about our lives real quick. Many of us, quite frankly, don't yearn for the return of Christ. We don't yearn for the return of Christ because our lives are actually pretty comfortable. Despite what anxiety we might have about money or finances or relationships or whatever, jobs, we're actually pretty comfortable. We've invested so much in our world and ourselves and our jobs and homes and vacations and family that the thought of Jesus returning would be more of an interruption than the fulfillment of a great hope. And just as much we may not yearn for the return of Christ because we're scared of the judgment that will come when that happens. But we should have Jesus' return and the judgment of Jesus in mind with a new perspective. Jesus will return as king to judge the world. But Jesus has already taken the judgment of God in our place. That's what he did on the cross, and that's where he's pointing everybody to that's listening to what he has to say right now in this part of Matthew. At Jesus' first coming, Jesus didn't come to bring judgment. He came to take our judgment. That's the gospel. Jesus, the great judge of the universe, came the first time not to bring judgment to this earth, but to take it in his place, to take it in our place. And so all that's left for you and I is mercy and grace. But to those who have not received him, he will come to give to all exactly what they deserve. And that is our call to action because we carry the good news of the kingdom that offers hope, that offers relief from judgment, that offers a way to have faith. For us, the truth of Jesus' return, the gospel should reorient our fear to faith, our despair to hope, and our apathy to action. And so that's why, as I mentioned at the very beginning, we have this call on our lives during this time of Lent. The very things that Ben wrote about and put up on our blog, those are our calls this morning. I want you to understand that God's word and what Jesus is teaching us here helps to reorient our lives toward him, that we might submit all of our lives to Jesus Christ, that we might reorient our lives from fear to faith, from despair to hope, and from apathy to action. And the call as we leave this place this morning, the call as we conclude our time of me standing on this stage, hopefully speaking God's word, our call is this that we would be intentional about our times of prayer. That we would be intentional about our times of prayer. That we would be in God's word each day. If you take a bulletin, you'll see there's some questions that call you to be intentional about being in God's word. And the questions with which, as you study God's word, the questions to ask yourself, that it might lead us to submit more of our lives 
to Christ, to increasingly submit all of our lives to the Lordship of Jesus. And the call in our life this morning is to be intentional, intentional about speaking this gospel of the kingdom. Jesus tells us that his words will not pass away. Jesus tells us that this gospel of the kingdom will continue to be proclaimed. That's you and I doing that. And so our call to action is to be intentional about speaking the words of God that other people might have despair that turns to hope, that other people might have fear that turns to faith, and that other people would have apathy that turns to action, and that they would become people who lead people to Jesus, who lead people to Jesus, who lead people to Jesus. I'm going to close out our time together. Um, Every Sunday morning we close out our time together in the same way. Um, A band's going to come back up here in just a second. They're going to continue to lead us in some songs and give us the opportunity to worship by singing. Um, During this time as well, you have an opportunity to give. There's a giving table in the back where you can give your tithes and offering. During this time, you also have the opportunity to sit right where you are and reflect on what we've heard this morning. And as much as the Holy Spirit is speaking to our minds and hearts about the call on our life that we can see, even in the midst of Matthew 24, when Jesus is talking about some things that are going to happen before the end. So I would encourage you, if you need to sit and reflect on God's call to action for you personally to do that, there will also be some people in the back that you can pray with. Uh, If you want to know more about the gospel of the kingdom, if you want somebody to pray with you, um, whatever that might be, um, that opportunity exists as well. And finally, uh, we have the opportunity to take communion. Um, I'll invite you to come down this middle aisle, go in either direction, tear off the bread, dip it in the wine or juice, and remember the body of Christ um, that was broken for us and the blood of Christ that was shed for us. Here's why we take communion, okay? We take communion because it's a visible sign where we remember what Christ has done for us and we proclaim to one another that we believe it. So if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you can remember what Christ has done for you and you can proclaim that you believe it, then I would invite you to come and take communion. If that's not something you can do, I would encourage you to sit where you are, not so that you're singled out, but I don't want you to call and do something that you can't proclaim, something that you don't believe. Um, But like I said, the opportunity exists for you to come and take communion, to remember what Christ has done, and to proclaim to one another that we actually believe the gospel. I'm going to pray for us, and, uh, and then we'll move on from there. God, thank you for the reminder from your word this morning that your return is imminent. And God, the fact that your return is imminent and that you are coming offers us a way to escape fear, a way for us to escape despair, a way for us to be called to action around the gospel. God, I pray that you would continue in whatever ways you're speaking to our hearts and minds to do that even now. God, that Jesus would be lifted high, that we would be drawn to you, that we'd be drawn to deeper faith, deeper um, commitment to you, a deeper belief in the gospel and what you've done for us as a result of your work in our hearts and minds this morning. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the fact that he bore our sins, that he took our judgment, and that because of that, we can be right with you. God, thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for this opportunity we have now to respond. God, we ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.